This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. The following episode involves details of child sexual abuse. Parental discretion is advised. You're listening to part two of Unexplained Season 5, Episode 16, Built on Shifting Sands. By 1966, stables owner George Jane had built a significant reputation as a breeder of horses, particularly within the glitzy and rarefied world of show jumping. His phone number being found in the purse that Patricia Blau left behind on the beach at the Indiana Dunes State Park marks a significant shift in the narrative regarding her fate and that of her two friends, Anne Miller and Renee Blau. To understand why requires understanding a little more about George Jane and the world he operated in, but more specifically, understanding his older brother, Silas. It isn't clear if the connections that were later made between the missing women and the Janes brothers were fully understood at the time of the women's disappearance. For many who've looked into the case more recently, however, it is an essential one. Silas and George Jane grew up in Lake Zurich, a village on the northern outskirts of Chicago, although their circumstances were a little different. Sixteen years older, Silas was born in 1907, the first of four boys, from a brood that would eventually swell to twelve in size. The Jane family had a small farm holding not far from the lake, and Silas's father Arthur made what little money he could as a truck driver, then later as a supplier of sugar to bootleggers during Prohibition. There was always something a little different about Silas, even from an early age. One morning, when he was six years old, he appeared at the kitchen door with his face and clothes covered in blood and feathers. When his horrified mother asked the young boy what he'd done, He explained excitedly that one of the geese had bit him, so naturally, 
In order to stop it happening again, he found an axe and chopped every last one of them to pieces. Silas's dad left the family in the early 1920s. A short time later, in 1923, George was born, the product of a new relationship between their mother Catherine and a man named George Spunner, who owned a local campsite. George was given the Jane surname, however, to avoid any unwanted gossip. A year after George was born, a then 17-year-old Silas raped someone. There are few details about the crime other than that he was sentenced to several years in prison. And while inside, his brothers, DeForest and Frank, became increasingly interested in horses, eventually opening up their own ranch in Woodstock, about 20 miles west of Lake Zurich. When Silas was released several years later, it was only natural that he would join his brothers in their new venture. The Jane brothers specialised in breaking wild horses that they had shipped in from the west for use in the rail industry. Others would be unceremoniously chopped up and sold as dog food. By the 1930s, the brothers, or the Jesse Jane gang as they had come to be known, had gained a tough reputation among the local community. The brothers did little to dispel the nickname, preferring instead to wear it as a badge of honour. Most proudly, on the days when they would drive their latest herd through town. Silas, in particular, soon developed a liking for the way the townspeople would try to avoid eye contact or cowered in shop doorways as they passed. Though George didn't share a father with the brothers, DeForest, or Dee as he was nicknamed, was quick to take him under his wing. Dee was a well-respected rodeo rider and riding instructor, and as George grew old enough to help out at the ranch, the pair became increasingly close. Though Silas was jealous of their relationship, he had far too much respect for Dee to let it show. As detailed in a 2002 article in Chicago magazine written by Jean O'Shea, in 1938, DeForest's fiancée, May Sweeney, was found dead in their home. An autopsy seemed to confirm that she committed suicide by drinking arsenic. The day after May's funeral, Dee put on his smartest rodeo costume, grabbed his 12-gauge shotgun and left the house. Having marched up to the cemetery, he stood over May's freshly dug grave, placed the shotgun under his chin and pulled the trigger. It's thought the animosity that would come to define Silas and George's relationship stemmed from this singular moment in their lives. For George, he'd lost the person that was most close to him in the world, but he was also reported to have gained 20 acres of land that had been left to him in Dee's will. Silas, on the other hand, had lost one of the few moderating influences in his life, and the land left behind for George drove a thick wedge between the brothers that would never be extracted. In DeForest's absence, the brothers continued their horse operation, with Silas now taking more of a leading role. As a convicted felon, Silas was spared having to fight in the Second World War, allowing him to cement further his grip on the family business. Silas was even able to expand the operation, selling horse meat as beef on the black market, 
This endeavour would bring Silas into contact with the Chicago mob, but with his gruff demeanour and the tattoo on his forearm of a snake winding its way around a dagger, Silas wasn't cowered by anyone. But it was through the showhorse business that the Janes brothers really found their fortune. Silas may have had a reputation as a tough guy, but he was also an electrically charismatic figure. It was a ruthless combination, and one that seemed to work best on well-heeled men from the city and wealthier Chicago suburbs, who came to his stables in search of show horses to buy their children. Perhaps keen to prove their macho worth in Silas's presence, the men would think nothing of shelling out anything up to $20,000 on one of his horses, if he said it could turn their children into championship show horse riders. Only with Silas, there was always a catch. Often when Silas sold a horse, on the pretense it was a surefire competition winner, the new owners would soon receive a call from Silas's stable, informing them of the bad news that the horse had suddenly taken ill, or broken a leg, and had to be killed. Though disappointing, The owners would often be covered by insurance, and in the meantime, Silas could collect champion horse-level fees and do away with the animal before its somewhat less-than-championship qualities were ever discovered. And there were other reasons to be wary of him too. With Silas owning a stables, as well as a horse dealership, many of the horses would be kept at the stables, with their young female owners often dropping in to look after them. It is widely speculated that Silas, a convicted rapist, took advantage of them. At some time in the early 1950s, Silas ordered George to break another horse's leg, but George refused. Having long grown tired of Silas's nefarious practices, he decided in that moment to strike out on his own. Soon after, he bought the Happy Day Stables in Norwood Park. Silas in turn expanded his business, buying the Idle Hour Stables in Park Ridge, with George now essentially set up as a rival operation. On the afternoon of October 16th, 1955, three young boys, 14-year-old Robert Peterson, 13-year-old John Scheusler, and his 11-year-old brother, Anton Jr., set off from their home in Jefferson Park, and headed to Chicago to watch The African Lion, a Disney documentary that had just been released at the cinema. But the boys never returned home. Two days later, all three of their naked bodies were found in a ditch in the Robinson Woods, which just so happened to be a couple of miles down the road from Silas's Idle Hand stables. Several local residents claimed to have heard screams coming from the direction of the stables the night the boys disappeared. Police made a cursory search of the property and spoke to a few stable hands working at the time they visited, but all denied knowing anything about what had happened. In 1961, George's daughter took the top prize at a local show horse competition riding a horse that George had reared and trained. The win established George as the leading Jane brother in the business and drew immediate scorn from Silas. After years of festering resentment, 
George was now stealing his business too. In response, Silas began a relentless campaign of hate against his half-brother, involving everything from damaging property to thinly veiled death threats. Things only got worse for George, the more successful his business became. But there was another reason, according to George's wife Marion, that Silas had become murderously fixated on George. Something to do with incriminating information that George had on Silas regarding what he knew about those three dead boys. George wouldn't go public with the information, according to Marion, for fear of reprisal from Silas, especially since he was suspected of having informers that worked inside the police. Instead, he is said to have told his wife that he wrote it all down in a letter that was only to be opened if Silas ever succeeded in having him killed. It was around this time that Pat Blau, Anne Miller and René Brule began frequenting George Jane's tricolour farm in Palatine, a village on the northwest outskirts of Chicago. Being keen riders, they would likely have known Cheryl Lynn Rood too. By 1965, the then 22-year-old Rood was one of George's top riders. She'd also once ridden for Silas, but had left his stable after he propositioned her for sex. On June 14th, not long after Rude had won a competition in Cincinnati, she was once again visiting the tricolour stables when George tossed her his car keys and asked her to move a trailer for him. Catching them, Rude jogged over to his Cadillac, pulled open the door and got behind the wheel. Placing the keys into the ignition, she turned them. A huge explosion ripped through the vehicle, blowing out the windows and raising the car off the ground in a ball of fire and smoke. Cheryl Lynn Rude was killed instantly. Five days later, a man named Stephen Grodd confessed to George that the bomb had been meant for him and that when it didn't work, Silas paid him to shoot George. George informed the police and Silas was arrested for attempted murder. However, in March 1966, when Grodd came to take the stand, he was suddenly overcome with a strange bout of memory loss, remembering nothing of what he'd previously confessed to George. The case promptly collapsed. A few months later, the three young women went to Indiana Dunes State Park and never came home. Did they as some have speculated, see something at the tricolour stables that they were not meant to have seen. Most nights I share a bed with a Pro Bowl quarterback, an Olympic swimmer and a national soccer star. I should explain, when I heard how many elite athletes sleep on a molecule mattress and call it their best sleep ever, I ordered one for myself and soon found they were spot on. Molecule sleep scientists literally created the world's most perfect mattress. It's unlike any other mattress in a box. It's cool to the touch, unlike other foam mattresses. It has six times the airflow of my old mattress, so it keeps me cool all night. It has zone reflex layers that adjust with me in all my weird sleep positions, so I never awaken with a stiff neck or sore back, and it's antimicrobial. Molecule Mattress is how elite athletes and I get the best sleep ever. Sleep on your Molecule Mattress risk-free for 100 nights. 
If you don't have your deepest, most restorative sleep ever, return it. Visit onmolecule.com and save 20% with promo code UNEXPLAINED. Again, save 20% with promo code UNEXPLAINED at onmolecule.com. That's onmolecule.com. By September 1966, it had been two months since Pat, Anne and Renee disappeared and police had found no sign of them or either of the boats that they were said to have boarded on the day they went missing. With everything that had been found going on in the girls' private lives, Sergeant Edward Burke of the Indiana State Police was certain of only two things, that the women had not accidentally drowned at the beach nor had they been involved in any boating accident. Since no boats or any other people near the water that day were declared missing, it seemed only reasonable to assume that the men who they joined on the boats knew something about their whereabouts. Though the search of the beach had finished up months before, thousands of leaflets with pictures and details of the women continued to be printed up and distributed throughout the area. Harold Blau, Pat's father, remained convinced the women had been abducted and most likely murdered, believing it was simply inconceivable that one of them hadn't found a way to let their parents know they were okay. Keeping up his own investigation, he continued to fly back and forth over the Indiana Dunes area and shores of Lake Michigan in the forlorn, one in a million hope that he might spot something to help find them. By 1967, George Jane was growing tired of running from his brother and having to watch over his and his family's shoulders wherever they went. When his two daughters got married that year, he paid Silas not to cause any trouble for them. The payoff, along with the promise that he would quit competing in horse shows, appeared to do the trick and an uneasy truce was established. George's paranoia, however, remained enough so that he had a transmitter secretly placed on Silas's car to alert him whenever his brother got too close. In 1969, the transmitter stopped working. Realising the battery had likely cut out, George sent someone to try and covertly replace it for him. Having snuck onto Silas's farm, the man, Frank Michelle Jr., was just in the process of swapping out the battery when he was spotted by one of Silas's guard dogs. Almost as soon as they began to bark, Silas was at the door with his gun. Spotting Frank fiddling with his car, he opened fire and killed him. Enraged once again by his brother's actions, Silas approached Edwin Neffold, a police officer from Markham who'd worked for him in the past, a man on the inside, just as George had suspected, and asked him to arrange a hit on George, but to do it right this time. Neffeld recruited a man named Melvin Adams, who in turn recruited another man, Julius Barnes, to carry out the job. On October 28, 1970, a car parked up across the street from George's home in Palatine, Illinois, while Adams got out and popped the hood to make it look as though something was wrong with the vehicle. Julius crept over to the Jane's household, where he heard laughter 
bubbling up from out of the basement window. Peeking through it, he saw the 47-year-old George sitting at a table playing cards with his wife Marion and his daughter and son-in-law. Julius aimed a gun at George's heart and pulled the trigger. The family screamed at the sound of the gun blast and watched in horror as George stumbled to his feet, clutching at his shirt, where a flower of red was steadily blossoming. Then he fell to the floor and died. A short time after George's murder, Marion discovered the stash of letters he'd been keeping in the event of his death. Though she found nothing linking Silas to the murders of Robert Peterson and John and Anton Schussler, the three young boys found dead close to Silas's stables in 1955, George had made a record of the numerous times that Silas tried to have him killed. Marion later insisted that George knew more about the murder of the young boys but had perhaps decided against exposing his brother because of the shame it would bring to his family. Partly on account of the letters and due to the statement of Melvin Adams, who was granted immunity and returned for his testimony, Julius Barnes, Edwin Neffelt and Silas himself, along with one other acquaintance, were all convicted for their part in George's murder. Then, at some point down the line, a curious coincidence involving Neffelt who'd organised the hit on behalf of Silas, is said to have come to light. According to one source, after Pat Blau, Anne Miller and René Brule went missing, Neffeld apparently lodged an insurance claim for a boat matching the description of the one the women were seen boarding around noon on the day they disappeared. The inference being that Silas had arranged to have them taken care of, having possibly witnessed the failed attempt on George's life at the tricolour stables, with Edward Neffeld perhaps once again doing the dirty work. Neffeld is alleged to have told his insurance company that the boat was destroyed in a fire, however this has not been confirmed. By 1970, with the women having been missing for four years, the case was effectively dormant. Pat's father Harold, however, had refused to give up hope and though the grief at his daughter's loss could be crippling, he continued doing whatever he could to find her. Whenever the weight of it threatened to completely consume him, he would jump into his car and drive out to Chesterton, Indiana, to speak with Sergeant Burke. Although Burke had long since moved off the case, he made an effort to keep on top of any new information that came in, no matter how small. By then, he'd come to the conclusion that the women had staged their disappearance in order to escape the various problems in their lives. Blau would often leave their meetings with a renewed sense of hope and optimism at the prospect of maybe one day seeing his daughter again, but the fog of grief was never far away, returning the moment he remembered just how unlikely it was that Pat would not have got some kind of message to them by then. Sergeant Burke retired the following year and took up a security post in Saudi Arabia. Harold Blau and his wife moved to Florida, from where Harold continued to trade letters with Burke, discussing their various theories until the day he died. In the early 1970s, the case of the missing women 
was taken over by Sergeant Michael Carmen of the Indiana State Police. While familiarising himself with the case, he and State Trooper Lou Weber came across an intriguing letter written from a self-described psychic in Montana, claiming to know where the women's bodies were located. It read, I visualise a cabin on Lake Michigan, not too far from where the girl's beach blanket was found. There is dark-coloured sand. There are rickety wooden stairs leading up from the beach to a cabin on a bluff with a broken lawn chair outside. Carmen discovered that the letter had never been acted on and with no new substantial leads cropping up since Burke's retirement, he figured it was at least worth the hour or so it would take to have a look. Handing the letter to Weber, the state trooper made his way to the Indiana Dune State Park. After parking his cruiser as close as he could to the shore, he continued the rest of the way on foot. After walking almost two miles east from the spot on the beach where the women had been sitting on that fateful day, he came across an area of dark sand. Looking up, he also spotted a crooked line of rickety wooden stairs leading up from the beach, and at the end of that, an old dilapidated cabin. When he spotted the broken lawn chair with the fabric torn out and flapping in the wind, he turned immediately and ran back to the car. Weber returned to the beach an hour later, joined this time by Sergeant Carmen and two other officers. Over the next three days, the four of them dug and dug, turning over every grain of sand they could find in the cabin's vicinity, until eventually, empty-handed, they were forced to admit defeat. The bodies of the women, if they had ever been there at all, were not there then. Silas Jane was released from prison in 1979 after spending less than 10 years in jail for arranging the murder of his half-brother, George. Despite regularly reporting a yearly income of only $5,000, Silas somehow found the money to buy homes for each of his sisters, as well as a string of new Cadillacs. When he eventually died in 1987, succumbing to leukaemia, he was reported to be worth well over a million dollars, close to two and a half in today's money. In the mid-1990s, agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, looking into the disappearance of Helen Brack, a well-known socialite, also with ties to the horse industry, who went missing in 1977, stumbled upon something unexpected. While interviewing informants regarding the Brack case, one let slip that a man named Kenneth Hansen confessed to them that he'd murdered those three young boys in 1955, found near Silas's stable. Hansen, who would have been 22 at the time, was an employee of Silas's who worked at those same stables. At a subsequent trial, it was speculated that Hansen picked up the boys on their way home from the cinema in Chicago and drove them to Silas's ranch under the pretense of showing them the horses. Hansen was in the process of raping John and Anton Schussler when Robert Peterson caught him in the act. In a panic, Hansen murdered all three of them. When Silas is reported to have found out what happened, 
no doubt fearful that Hansen would expose his criminal activities and of what Hansen's crime would mean for the reputation of his stables, he helped Hansen dispose of the bodies and covered the whole thing up. This was the secret that George's wife Marion believed George took to the grave and ultimately cost him his life. There were rumours that Silas once confessed to a cellmate while in prison for George's murder that he knew where Pat Blau, Ann Miller and René Brule were buried. It is also said that sometime before he died, Silas told a sheriff that three bodies were buried under his home. Supposedly, plans were made to search Silas's property until the sheriff involved was killed suddenly in a farming accident. Neither of these claims have been verified. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help support us, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplainedpod to sign up. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are greatly appreciated. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. 
Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.